individuals to come together um, and speak together and speak to each other. And a month ago, I attended an event that Luna Alfred spoke at at UCT. And the night before, there was another event with kind of all the activists. And they kept talking about being in solidarity. You know, this, every speaker kind of emphasizing this point that we need to be in solidarity. And I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, like, what is our solidarity worth? You know, to the people of Palestine, to the people of Phoenix, to the people of Eswatini, um, to each other. You know, in order to be in solidarity with each other, we actually have to build solidarity. And so we, I think as young people specifically, maybe don't know how to do this, don't know how to start that process. What does it mean? You know, what does it look like? And so we didn't really want this to be kind of like a panel discussion. That's not what the objective was, but we thought that it was a good step or a good start to kind of learn from our elders who have already done these kind of processes and movement building, right? So that's what this event is about. We are gonna have a few speakers, but we want to be super engaging um, um, a conversation. Yeah, so without any more, uh, Axel also just tell us a bit about CARE, which is one of the organizations uh, organizing the space um, and essentially trying to do the movement building um, in Cape Town. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks And uh, good morning, everyone. Still yeah. Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> um, my name is Akoli Lemitra. Um, and I've been an activist in Cape Town for plus, plus minus 10 years or so. Uh, previously worked for the Social Justice Coalition. Oh, sorry, <coughs> previously worked for the Social Justice Coalition and um, been involved in a number of other um, social justice organizations uh, across Cape Town. I currently work for the Right to Know campaign. Um, but also with a number of activists. Uh, who have worked a lot, uh, majority of them in Pi Asia, and have been involved in different organizations such as Unawasi, Equalification, um, and a number of others. Uh, we began this process of um, actually reflecting around organizing and movement building within, within Cape Town. Um, and the fact that even our organizations and the work that we've done over these years um, has happened in silos. Um, and there's been quite a number of, of divides and divisions in terms of the, the, work that we've, the work that we've done. Predominantly because a lot of the work is from these organizations uh, is issue focused. Um, NU deals with housing, equal education, education, the SJC with informal settlements and policing and all those things. Um, but we know that um, the there are intersections and these, these, these things should be connected and they are, they are connected. Um, and then we reflected more last year when during the, the lockdown levels, when the country was closed um, and we realized many of us started to work with informal settlements that um, for many people, many people that are gonna be affected predominantly are those that are living in informal settlements. Um, and some people in Cape Town will be aware of the formation of community action networks um, that we formed last year. We formed uh, the Kylie Child uh, Community Action Network. 
And we started to do more reflections because what we realized is that our organizations also closed at that time, um, which was something that we, we didn't expect to happen. And so we started to organize, but we were only organizing in high nature. And so continue to reflect on the fact that um, this is a problem. Um, even a number of the organizations that have organized have predominantly organized uh, in Black African communities. Um, and, and that being one of the biggest issues in Cape Town. Uh, and then we started to, to think around the, 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 the building of this movement called the Movement for Collective Action and Racial Equity, um, short for Movement for Care. Because again, if you look at what happened in, during COVID last year, uh, and just in, in politics in general, uh, this, this issue or the sentiment of care is missing. Politicians don't, don't care, we don't see care in, 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 in politics. We started talking about the politics of care and engaging about the politics of care, but also about the politics of collective action um, to do away with those silos and the individual egos of organizing and, and building of, 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 of movements but to primarily focus on this issue of racial equity uh, as it has to do with the divide, and that's a growing divide that we're seeing in Cape Town between Black African and colored communities uh, who make up 80% of Cape Town's population, uh, but who are the most marginalized communities, <coughs> even though they are the majority within Cape Town, they are the most marginalized. Um, and the contributor of that is the divide and conquer um, uh, I think strategy of the DA of many other political parties and politicians and those that are in power, where we are kept along these divisions. I mean, this is the map of Cape Town, um, and you can see the divisions uh, in terms of where people live. Uh, the further you move away from the city, the darker the color of the skin becomes. Um, and so those are the issues that the, the movement sort of formed around to try and, and, and organize, but also to, to sort of build an alternative political home, because many of us don't have a political home. And that's what has been missing. There's been many political parties that have uh, come out, but many of us don't really relate to the type of politics that is done there. To build a political home that provides a sense of hope, a sense of security, but also a sense of, of belonging. Um, and at this point in time, those, some of those things, um, one, of, one of the comrades from, from a movement in, in, in Brazil told me that those things you would find, and I, and I related to that, those things, hope, security, and belonging, you would find in gangs and in religious institutions. Those are the only two institutions that provide that sense of hope, security, and belonging. And we know uh, that as much as they are organized and they can organize, there's many issues with those institutions. Uh, hence, we need to build an alternative um, that's trying to deal with, 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 with all these issues. And that building, uh, as much as, uh, and I think it's going to be important to, to, to hear uh, the historical building of movements from, uh, from, from Alan Bosa, um, we also need to start to unlearn in terms of how we know politics. Because the type of politics that we know uh, also have <laughs> political parties that have been established. And so a process of unlearning is, is important. And that's sort of a motto that we go with, uh, some of us, uh, as we build the movement, that we need to unlearn, we need to disrupt, and we need to rebuild. 
Um, and that's a concept, we call it the UTR concept. And that's how we hope we can build a better movement. And so that's just a brief uh, history around the start of the movement. And we're hoping that this conversation today can contribute uh, towards either building this movement or building other movements that are there so that there is solidarity and we are able to deal with the many injustices that we see in Cape Town, uh, but also in South Africa and in global. Thank you. Um, so yeah, we aren't going to do, you know, like long bio, so Ellen Busak up next. Oh, thank um, you. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity, uh, Jordan and Kolile. I, um, I appreciate uh, being with, uh, with you all today. Um, let me uh, make four quick points as, uh, as an introduction. This meeting uh, was originated uh, by these two uh, comrades next to me um, after one of the lectures I had, a series of lectures in Cape Town. And it was the idea that we will bring together young people from their organizations or those not yet belonging to organizations, but knowing that something needs to happen, something quite drastic needs to happen. And I think Kolile uh, uh, has, has taken this all together and summed it up very neatly. Uh, and I like the way he ended. Um, that it is about unlearning those things that have been drawn into us or things that we have become used to, as if those were the normal things we're supposed to do. But that was also the things that generally paralyzed us and prevented us from doing what was necessary to be done. It is also a question of disrupting. So if you see that things are going in the wrong direction, it's not just enough to observe that things are going in the wrong direction was find a way of disrupting the way things are going so that you can begin to build something new, an alternative in their place. And that's where the R comes in. So I love that. Thank you very much. And when I, when I had our first conversation, those are the things that, that, that excited me. So today's conversation has broadened a bit, um, um, not just young people, I have been told, uh, are, are part of this wider uh, process uh, today. But I would like simply to say that I think the initiative should firmly remain in your hands. This should be a thing that young people must take on as their own. You must own the state. The rest of us will come in as we are needed, as we can help where we can uh, provide, but this intergenerational, interracial, uh, uh, um, cross-cultural, whatever movement that you are building, that should be the core. That's what we should be moving against um, or toward. And I think, I think, I think that, is, that is very important. The second thing I want to say why this conversation is uh, so crucial. Um, in the church, uh, when the church was still uh, an activist church, uh, 70s, 80s, um, we sort of talked a lot and worked along a three-step process. And we called it see, judge, and act. In other words, you first have to discern what is the situation in which we find ourselves. 
What is our society like? What is the church like? What are our organizations like? What are we doing? Are we doing anything at all? If what we are doing is that right, is that wrong, is that helpful, is that not helpful? So see what is around you, see the situation in which our people live, understand the challenges that we are facing. So making clear that those realities uh, are, what we, are what we are dealing with. Don't play what I call the politics of sentiment. Um, don't say, well, you know, we know things are wrong, but I love the ANC so much because my grandfather was part of the ANC and Mr. Mandela did so much. And so I'm, I'm gonna do this, but no, 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 no. That's not sentimental. We're not dealing with sentiment. We're dealing with the realities of people's lives. We're dealing with poverty, that's not sentimental. We're dealing with a lack of education, that's not sentimental. We're dealing with a lack of employment. That's not, people are not prepared our young people are mostly not prepared for the challenges that they have to face on a daily basis. Those are the realities. So once you see that, then you judge. So what is it that's wrong with this? That's where the disruption comes in. You judge this thing is wrong. You judge yourself. What am I doing about it? Do I even begin to understand? Do I tell myself that I have a responsibility? Why do I have a responsibility? And if I have a responsibility, I do something, do I do it for myself? Do I do it on my own? Do I do it with others? Can I do it for others? Do I even realize that what we have here is a small part of a much more wider struggle, a global struggle? So your your question, what has what we are doing here to do with young people in Palestine? What is it that we are doing here? What has that to do with young people on the streets today as we speak in Myanmar being mowed down by a military? What, what are the connections? That's when and how you build up global solidarity. Um, and then the last part is act. So once you have seen, once you have understood, once you have analyzed, once you have judged what is wrong and what is right and what should be done, then you say, so how do we act? And you can only act together. That's where you begin to build your organizations that, uh, that Kalili was, was, was talking about. So that's where, that's where we begin with this. And, 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 and for us, uh, this has to be this has to be a very clear situation, um, and I'm hoping that 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 today, when we bring representative of these different organizations together, um, that that would be the foundation upon which we would build. You cannot mobilize people individually. You mobilize people as they find themselves in the organizations that present the causes that are important. Our job must be, how do we take these different organizations with these different causes? Don't make them silos, don't make them silos. Don't take the causes away because for those people, those causes are important because it impacts immediately on their lives but see how can we bring this together and how can, we, how can we build all these different causes to become one cause so that you can have a national goal for what we are doing. And finally, you can have a global goal so that what we do here fit in with what is happening because the enemy that we are fighting is not just here. 
If you think deep enough, and if you look deep enough and understand deep enough, then you will see that that enemy is global and they're not split. They know exactly what they're doing. It's no difference between Donald Trump and Obama and Biden and Boris Johnson and the military junta in Myanmar, no difference whatsoever. And the Israeli government, they're all serving the same purpose. And our people are the people who always suffer because of what, but they achieve that because their differences is very superficial. So we need to decide the differences that we have, how important are they really in the greater scheme of things? Are they helpful? Now, so the people who say climate change is my issue and the people who say LGBTQI justice is my issue, gender justice is my issue. Those are all legitimate causes. They are not opposing causes. They belong together. We're all fighting. At the end of that thing, you will find the same forces making common cause to keep whatever the situation is, the status quo that benefits and profits them, that to keep that intact. We've got to disrupt that. We've got to break it up. We've got to build alternatives. That's one of the reasons why I have come to the conclusion, the same conclusion we have come to 40 years ago, 30 years ago, that the only way to build a politics that work, uh, a politics of freedom, a politics for freedom, is to totally go outside the political structures that we are presented with. That was true. In 1983, it is true today. We have also, well, we've learned a lot of things. You've got to unlearn a, new, a lot of things, but we also learned a, new, a lot of things, namely that it really does not matter whether there is a black face in office. What matters is what that black face stands for. What are their political goals? What is their political agenda? Is that an agenda that serves our people, that serves freedom, that serves justice, that serves dignity? If it isn't, it doesn't matter what they look, how much they look like us. I wrote a book with the title, Pharaohs on both sides of the blood red waters. Now, those of you who follow the biblical story, there was this Pharaoh who held people in captivity and in enslavement, and then they had to go away from him into a different place and, and, and the book is all about what do you do when you run away from one pharaoh you're confronted with another pharaoh but that pharaoh looks just like you so um what what then so that is where we are in this 2021 here the last thing i want to say is this um when i was uh, uh teaching for a while in the United States. Um, I got two invitations. All of you know the Black Lives Matter movement, which started after the death of Trayvon Martin in 2012 in Florida. Um, and then in 2014, they killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. So the people in Ferguson invited me. On Friday night, I spent uh, all of Friday afternoon, most of Friday evening, with all of the young people involved in the Black Lives Matter struggle. Because I said, I can't preach on Sunday morning unless I have spoken to everybody that's involved. So on Saturday morning, I met with all the community organizations involved in the Black Lives Matter movement in Ferguson. And on Saturday afternoon, I met with all the clergy 
um, who, were, who, ha who had become involved. And, and I was able to share with all of them. And, and, and on Sunday morning, after all of that, I preached. Now, that was an important moment for me because here you have a Black Lives Matter movement after the civil rights movement. In a, in, a, in a way, they had very little to do with the old civil rights movement, and there were lots of tensions. Um, but they, the question they asked me was, can you share with us what you guys did with the UDF? They knew all of that history um, that, that made you so successful at so many levels. And let's talk about, let's exchange ideas and experiences. That's number one. So grassroots people involved in the struggle. I got a second invitation from University of California in Los Angeles. Their question was, we have a class, sociology, political science, about social movements and how social movements bring about changes in society and mobilization being changed society. Please, and one of the movements they were studying as an academic study was South Africa and the UDF. So I said to myself, oh my goodness, here we are. We did what we did simply because we were fighting for freedom. Here, 30 years later, people in the United States are thinking about what we have done. So I am so excited because here we are today together and you are South Africans. And you are saying, what is it that we can learn from our own past? What is it that we must unlearn from our own past? What were the mistakes that we made? What were the things that we did that were right? How can we apply this today in our new situation to challenge, to unlearn, to disrupt, to rebuild, and to create an alternative space for us? Because one thing we all know is that things are wrong, and we are the ones who got to do something about it. Thank you. Thank you very much for those stirring words, Dr. Um, Zach. Uh, so now we'll be hearing from Barry and then um, Yeah, um, thank you, Jonan, and then thank you to all the comrades that are here. Uh, I will say quite frankly that uh, I am a little bit, uh, what will I say, uh, do I say scared? Because to speak after Professor Alan Uzak has spoken, you are used to the church, the senior priest speaks last. <laughs> so I didn't know why the junior priest should now speak after the senior priest has spoken. Is that a promotion or is it to set me up? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's on land, yeah. Thank you very much, um, comrade. I didn't quite get your name uh, for the way you captured it. And I want to say that this um, event for me is one of the most striking events or session that I've ever attended in my 16 years of being in South Africa. Um, by way of um, introduction and background, um, I come from the Ogoni ethnic nationality that had been fighting against Shell for over um, 30 years. Um, I was part of the movement under Ken Sarawewa. And um, today in the whole of the continent, we, a small, tiny um, minority group, 
less than um, a million people, are the only people that had resisted Shell to the extent that we have denied them access to almost a billion barrel of crude oil. Thank you. Now, the fight continues. Why do I bring that up? I bring that up because in 2003, uh, those of us who were part of the movement to resist Shell uh, were fourth out of, um, uh, of, of Ogoni land. I was part of those who escaped Ogoni land in 1999. So we were in, in neighboring countries. So we were scattered all over West Africa, I was leading about 2000 activists. And then um, they will not call ourselves together and said, what do we do? We need to take this campaign forward. Comrade Buzak, there was opportunity for me to go to France or Germany. Consciously, we said, we are going to South Africa. Why did we choose South Africa? In our mind, the fall of apartheid, the success against the apartheid system reflected the dignity of the African people. So we took the decision that no, South Africans will understand us. Did they? Now, I, asked, I said this because we came to, to South Africa. If I, when I arrived in Johannesburg with my 50 racketty dollars, I met um, a countryman who was pursuing his master's degree. He said, no, you go to Cape Town. I said, why Cape Town? He said, the parliament is there. Desmond Dudu is there. Alex Buzak is there. All the radical people are there. Just go there. He put me on a greyhound bus and I arrived here. We found a small office around the corner. Now we stayed in community house. The Kulumani support group was next to my office. Uh, Institute for Petroleum Studies was next to me. Everybody was around. Now the Kulumani support groups are victims of apartheid who suffered um, a system that was fueled by Shell. The Institute for Petroleum Studies were there who understand how the apartheid system was supported by the oil company. And I was there with the experience from the field, but yet it was difficult for me to connect with them. And so they would look at me like this. They, don't, they, don't, they didn't see the connection. And so what do we learn to respond to you? First and foremost, I think for me, South Africa has a unique position to um, ask itself, what should be the relationship with the rest of the continent when it comes to post-nationalism struggle? That's a critical question that has not been asked. I say this because we stayed there until we literally ran a grant. We left community house almost frustrated. We'd be 
operating from our home, struggling for 16 years, it's difficult. Now, for, for all these 16 years, and for almost 10 years that I was in community house, I'm not talking of people that are not coming. Activists kept looking at me with suspicion. Now, what do we learn and what do we need to unlearn? Should we as activists on this continent relate with ourselves with the same way that the mainstream media construct the thinking about people from the rest of the continent? What makes you different? If you look at me, Comrade Barry, even if you can find everything about me online, and yet you still look at me as maybe he's one of those Nigerians. What makes you different? Why is it easy for us as comrades here to find resonance with the struggle in Latin America, but we forget that the over 500,000 Congolese in South Africa are victims of appropriation and exploitation. That Congo is the richest country in the continent with over 30 different mineral resources. And the only reason why Congolese are not in their country is because certain um, capitalist forces and nations have decided to make it a battlefield so that they can continue stealing their resources. So the question becomes, what is different between apartheid and what is happening in Congo today? Exactly. Now the point is that in the mind of Africans, those of us on this continent, white on black oppression is bad, but black on black oppression is not questioned. What do we need to learn? Um, Comrade said that we don't need to, and I, I like the way uh, Reverend Alan Busa put it that we should avoid political sentimentalism. Now, the biggest problem is we, we, we tend to have succumbed to the illusion of democracy. We have not learned how to hold our indigenous governments accountable. We have not learned how to hold, it, hold our government accountable. Friends, for me, I know that apartheid was heinous, but before you came into government, you knew. So why are you still giving us a narrative of the legacies of apartheid? Why don't you present to us what you have done? How do we hold our own indigenous government accountable? So the narrative we need to learn is, was it proper for us to demobilize after 1994? Because we demobilized. The same way we demobilized in 1999 after the military handed over to civil government. And now we've realized that the civil government in Nigeria is more corrupt than even the military. And so a few days ago, precisely on the 21st of, uh, of November, I then received a call. Somebody said, comrade, you need to come to Misenberg. There is a protest going on. I said, what is the protest? He said, now Shell is here, your mortal enemy. We want you to come. We need you now. I said, wow. 
I didn't know that Shell was my enemy. Even here in South Africa, I thought they are your enemies. He said, no, comrade, you have to come. We know you know all about Shell. So the point is, in 2014, when I came, Shell was my enemy because they were not in the doorstep of South Africa. Now it is our enemy. I wish I could say thank God for that, but I would not. Now, so the point is, the oppressor, the capitalist, the monster that chases me in Nigeria today, we don't know who he, that monster will chase next. All of a sudden, people have seen that Shell is that dangerous. Now ask yourself, if Shell could acquire the permits to explore the coast of South Africa, the most democratic and most structured country on the continent without due process. What do you think they do in Congo? What do you think they do in Nigeria? Yeah. What do you think they have done in other parts of the world? In fact, we realize if, if you read, if you go online and Google Oguni Bill of Rights, there is a line by Ken Sarwewa. He said, Oguni land in 1992 is not different from apartheid South Africa. In fact, more than what happened under apartheid South Africa is happened in Nigeria and still, ha still happening. Now, but at the time that those were happening, or oh, at that period, Nigeria got independence in 1960. 1961, it went to the United Nations and moved a motion that led to the establishment of the Committee Against Apartheid. And it is on record that Nigeria spent over 61 billion US dollars, issued over 3,000 passports to ANC comrades. We cannot count many. I school with a lot of anti-apartheid activists in Nigeria. Now, when we were doing that, it's not that we were so much unconscious of the oppression that was happening in our midst. We knew that we had a problem, but we did not wait that our problem should go away before we started showing solidarity. My own conclusion, um, um, comrades, would be this. I think it is high time. To the best of my knowledge, I don't think there's any African country that is under um, colonialism at the moment. Colonialism has ended. The question we need to ask ourselves now is the next phase, which is the real liberation, the empowerment of our nation, government accountability. Should we still look to America, look to Russia, look to Latin America and South Africans? Now, it is only comrades on the continent that doesn't know how to work together. You know that Dangote in Nigeria comes to South Africa all the time. Him and Patrice Mosepe are friends. Gosh. You know that the president of my country, who speaks the worst of English, I don't know how Ramaphosa understands it when they sit down together to talk, but they are friends. Do you know that when MTN is going to Nigeria, they don't check the English. It is only comrades that will look at you and say, this guy, his English is Dutch. It is only comrades that doesn't work together. African politicians work together. African businesses work together. 
It is only comrades that think the answer to our African liberation will come from outside the continent. And so for me, the starting point is, what do we do? And I am not the only one who is in this country as an activist. There are thousands of people who came here with genuine struggle. What do we do to hold hands with them, learn with them, work together with them, and say, there should be a new Africa. Thank you very much, comrade. Thank you very much for that. Um, Andy, I'm not sure how you're feeling now. <laughs> okay, so... Um... I'm Mandy Sanger. For those who don't know, I work at the District 6 Museum. Um, but just in terms of my background, I'm an activist from the 1980s. So I was a high school student in the, 80, in, the, in the 70s, started high school in 76, and ended in 1980. So my high school years were book-ended by two major national struggles. Um, and that's largely shaped my identity. In fact, it... Um, it almost fast-tracked my political consciousness, which leads to, I think, uh, the gist of, of my input. It's more in terms of what I've kind of observed over my years of engagement. Um, and um, some of the things that I think might be useful for movement building and solidarity. And so I'm just gonna go through it. I, I think um, some of the speakers have touched on some of the stuff. Um, I'm an educator, that's my kind of role. So I, I expected that over years and years of, of experience of the anti-apartheid movement, we'd have moved beyond this kind of gathering and been more participatory. But I think one of the things we've learned that um, the nature of struggle is always move forward, take a few steps back, move forward, because new generations, new layers of people are always joining. So it's not a linear process. Um, and in that sense, I think uh, we're always in a situation of making the road while we walk. I think, I think that's a biblical, I'm not religious, but uh, we draw from all sources that's, that, that's valid. Um, and so um, it's always largely that case. We're always having to make sense of who's on this journey with us. And we're always having to recalibrate or this new generation who understands sort of uh, um, uh, what's the Google Maps and that. We're always having to recalibrate where we're going to. So this idea of having a fixed uh, idea of the future and working towards that no matter what I think is never uh, valuable. Um, um, I think in terms of, of my understanding and my experience movement building, uh, is always when you read about it in theoretical documents, you read back into history, it always appears to be an easy process. But I think for me, it's always been an incredibly discomforting activity. It's always been a disruptive activity. I've noted how younger generations of activists, particularly what came out of the Roads Must Fall movement, it was always a case of we go and disrupt. For me, the experience of movement building has always been disruption of my own sensibilities, my own sense of who we're engaging with. And so for me, the Roads Must Fall movement, while I was incredibly supportive of it, 
it, it was very jarring for me, this idea of how activists were centering themselves. Whereas in my culture of activism from the 76 movement and the 1980s, it was always about centering the people. Mm. Mm. That was always. And um, uh, so that was very, that was, I really think we have to work on that. You know, the activists need to get the ego out of it. Mm. It really is not about us. <laughs> it's about the situation. And so um, it's a very disruptive um, activity. The other thing that I think I've really observed in recent, and I'm, I'm trying to SMS short message the talk because I don't want to uh, go on for long, which we can do. Um, um, the other point I've, I've, I've kind of, particularly in, in relation to recent struggles around key and very important issues that affect the great majority of our people's sense of survival, actually. We're at that point where the levels of poverty, the levels of inequality is extreme, right? Yet in this situation, we, we find that we're mobilizing, and I think we need to really go beyond mobilization. Mobilizing in a situation of extreme poverty can be very dangerous. Mm. We've seen Hitler emerge from moments like that. We've seen Trump ride that wave. So it is not de facto that those who rise on the wave of mobilization are always the progressive people who can solve the problems of society. Sometimes mobilization aids. So I think we need to move beyond and organization is really what we must be thinking about. Um, and that organization has to be based on a politics of care. Um, and uh, for us in the 80s, a key sort of slogan that we used to drive us um, was the Che Guevara idea of a revolutionary is someone who's driven by great feelings of love, right? That's why we were in it. And we were prepared to really sacrifice ourselves. You must remember when we were thrown into jail, arrested, beaten up, we couldn't take a selfie and create a brand out of it. Uh, you know, it wasn't about that you were literally on your own. Uh, and so I think we underplay the, the, the general sacrifices that people made. Um, uh, they were not protected in their places of work. Uh, many of the activists with me were working class people who were worked in factories, right? These, and I think we don't write enough about that. We always think about the past as the Mandelas, the Busaks. <laughs> no, um, there's nothing wrong. I think it's important for these leaders, but beneath that or alongside that, were very ordinary everyday people who were taking ordinary risks. So they didn't leave their place of work to go become a professional activist. Um, one of the key things is how do we look around us and see how that becomes a terrain of struggle? And this is where what Barry's saying is very important. You know, look at who's around us, find connections. And I think we've really lost a lot of that because we've been centering ourselves. So I think the idea is to center the people. And uh, uh, Comrade Busak spoke uh, uh, quite a bit about that in his talk now. We need to, what that means is we need to really understand the people. And to do that, we need to be part of the people. In most cases, we need to actually come from the people. This idea of activists landing in poor communities as, UD, as UFOs 
I think is a problem, you know, uh, it's an act of charity rather than an act of solidarity. And so for us, even my work at the District 6 Museum, we don't pretend to give voice. We provide platforms and uh, analysis and opportunities to think about people so that they actually find their own voice. Because that's what we want. We want people to be able to. And then I've spoken about moving beyond mobilization, but key to that is the importance of analysis. Because I think sometimes when people work with um, working class people particularly, then it's always about simplifying the issues of struggle to the point of stupidity. As young activists, we used to go into fact, when I was at UWC, right? We go to UWC, we divide into community groups all over South Africa, where you came from. And that became the basis of organization. We then go back to our communities, connected with hundreds of students we'd meet at UWC. And it was a hell of a long journey. Uh, we'd stop off at lots of different communities. And we, we largely forged a lot of our relationships on trains, right? Uh, we turned trains into terrains of struggle. Or one of the comrades who was really inspirational to me was Cecil Iso. And uh, we'd have guerrilla theater on trains. And in that way, working class people who get involved in discussing issues of the day. It wasn't a performance or an event for social media. It was really about raising conversations. And um, uh, why that was very important is that it really, we really believe it had an effect and an impact on how people began to engage with each other in different communities. And this wasn't just us with CISO. UWC students were doing that on a wide scale in various forms. There wasn't a manual that people had. People were trying to make sense of, you know, how do we get people engaged in discussion? So it's a very much a reverse of, I think, what dominates today's public discourse, uh, political discussion where who, the, the first question people ask each other is, who am I seeing in the conversation? What are your political leanings? Uh, so it becomes about identity first. For us, it was about changing people's identity. So when I volunteered in, in uh, um, uh, a, a trade union while I was a UWC student, um, we had to work in incredibly racist colored communities. We worked with workers who were uh, from our communities. I come from retreat and there were others, other students who were from Grassy Park, Lotus River. Um, and we would work in Lavendale and we'd work with all the Bowler Metcalf workers who came from those communities. Now, remember, we also come from these communities. So they're in the churches with us. They, they're going to the camp, camp, end of year camps with us. So we, we're not foreign to who we're working with. And we'd engage with incredibly racist workers. We didn't say you're racist, we reject you. We saw that as a way in terms of how do we work. So we take workers in the chemical workers which was then the Paper, Wood and Allies Workers Union. And we take them to Hayes, 
pursuit because most of the meetings at that point would have been home house meetings right we didn't call people to these fancy <laughs> spaces or the museum spaces like we do have now or universities we'd go into people's homes and imagine in racist colored communities you uh, uh, workers from goods and langa come there from the paperwork to 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 educate them about the benefits of of being in a trade union but what resulted from that, not immediately also, years later, was that uh, the Chemical Workers Industrial Union was birthed. And it was one of the most strongly worker-conscious unions. So um, grappling with consciousness is not an event, right? It's not an event. It's not going to happen in one go. It really requires slow patient work. And for that, participatory methodologies are very important so i'm not i hope i don't sound like i'm preaching to you i'm really talking about what excited me and and what worked in my struggle this is not a tick box for activists today the main point is to make sense of the context to understand the power relations existing today and every moment really and then to understand our weaknesses their strength Right, and the fact that uh, what Barry says is vital, that the, the, the powers we're up against are incredibly united. They're in competition with each other, but they know who the enemy is. And our problem, we've lost sight of that. Our enemies have become each other based on identity, right? Identities become such a distraction. And I'm not arguing for color blindness here. I'm arguing for let's put the positions on the table, the visions for way forward. Let's see it in its multiple forms and then let's choose from it based on what we agree with rather than asking, you know, spending all this time asking how many people in wheelchairs are here, how many people who are LGBTQI are here, how many white people, too many white people kick a few out, how many <laughs> colored people are here, how many. We spend inordinate amounts of time on that rather than drawing people in as we make the road. And so I want to end off by saying our participatory processes need to really be about listening, hearing, because we also only listen to authority and power and titles. <laughs> we really have to, in my experience, We've I've learned a lot from working class people in the retreat, Steamberg, Lavendale, Lotus River community. One will be surprised once people find their voice, um, what powerful strategies and ways forward uh, for survival and struggle one learns. I really think that um, to end off with, um, that we must see identity as complex and not fixed. It's changing all the time. And we have tremendous capacity as human beings to reimagine ourselves and who we are. And I think that must really become the basis for how we build um, a movement. Um, I just want to end up with a story. I come from uh, the high school, the unity movement. And I think this is the, the, the other point about uh, activists that I encountered today. Uh, incredibly well read, incredibly knowledgeable, you know, they can churn off Franz Fanon, mm. you name it. Mm. Um, uh, Biko, 
mm. but completely disconnected from mm. the actual people who mm. now mm. i don't think the the response is we must move from theory to practice i think the response must be praxis and in, in my high school experience in challenging the unity movement who were incredibly knowledgeable i mean my teachers by the time we were in grade nine we had read ragged trousers philanthropists we knew marxism we 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 were incredibly knowledgeable but they were so disconnected from working class communities that they were preaching on behalf of and i think we must guard against this whole thing of the hubris of the knowledgeable right and you know this idea of if you know you okay it goes it, 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 the struggle is far more about taking people along with you and uh, my experience at south peninsula high school uh, really drove me to just instinctively know there's something horribly wrong because i came from retreat and i could feel they were not speaking in fact when i went to uwc i was shunned how's that for being knowledgeable and for being marxist that they regarded those of us who went to uwc to be collaborators and sellouts my teachers wouldn't talk to me right because i, ex I was expected to go and learn marxism at uct yet i learned more marxism from going to jake scarewell's afrikaans class <laughs> that i ever did from the unity movement right and so in practice in practice i want to end off with that thank you
have uh, pharmaceutical companies yet. And if all of a sudden the big production campaigns change the narrative to say no, the government, you know, and then you know that some CIA person came in, Saki Ahmad was there, and then all of a sudden we had our society to be turned into chaos. We like they basically shut down cities to remove that movie. But we don't know what was the global agenda behind that. My understanding is Mbeki didn't deny, he just wanted to question the science around it, you know? uh, And he, he also championed for immunization. So when him and Dr. Chabalara said eat organic stuff, he was championing for immunization. Whereby we have a society whereby we suffer from lifestyle diseases and now we have comorbidities and people are dying, you know? But at the same time, we are not saying immunization in general against all viruses, uh, anyway. Uh, that's basically what I get but from you, and uh, you know, I, I, I disrupting all of that. We do that forever, and, and then we still don't have civilization that we're moving towards. Uh, but thank you, sir. Then, um, Mr. Busa, uh, you were at Ashley Trail's uh, funeral. You led, uh, you ensured that the police uh, did not create more victims. Uh, you know, you took out how many activists from jail cells with your resources that you got from your church. So UDF was a brand, you know, so we cannot take away that, you know, uh, UDF was a brand. Activists today are forging brands within uh, consciousness. Uh, then we will move towards that. We must also uh, be able to to understand how post-structuralism and post-modernism has influenced our current worldview. We must understand George Soros sponsored the BLT so that people can bust into uh, cities, you know? So we must understand what is George Soros' plan. Yeah, in South Africa, we have open society, you know? Uh, so we must, we must really navigate the civil society space currently because uh, we have neoliberal civil society and we have pan Africanist civil society. Uh, and now we must go reflect on consciousness of Kwame Nkrumah. You know, uh, we must reflect on how South Africa colonizes the rest of Africa. And until South Africa is economically liberated, colonialism is still taking place, but we call it neocolonialism. And we have achieved political freedom, but we do not have economic freedom. So we do not own our banks. We do not own our economies. We don't have, in South Africa, we only have a service-based economy. We only have a finance capital economy. And then we have a small commercial farming that's not being transformed because only 50% is for black farms. We don't have industrialization. In Africa, we don't have industrialization. So it's cool for professionals to go and look for jobs and their CTs. NGOs like Youth Capital and Extra Youth Lab and everybody else, we, you know, we must search for jobs, but there is no jobs. What about the low-skilled kids? Me, I come from a public school in George, George High. My English is through YouTube and watching a lot of TV and a lot of guards. my You know, this is what Ramsey would call organic intellectuals, you know, that arise from the grassroots, from the proletariat, you know, and then through their own consciousness, God-given consciousness, God gives 
Like I said, we don't have main flows, like nobody spoon fed us that we must deliver nutritionists. We come from Kerkia, so when the assemblies of God, we put up and serve the planet Christians, and people, you know, don't become politicized. Uh, and globally, we know we're dealing with a Zionism for Stalin And I thought we can actually identify Zionists uh, and Askenazi Jewish deism. You know, and how to Jews at the Rhine River, how the Axelas Jews adopted, you know, and how Israel black Jews from Ethiopia to validate Israel as truly being Israeli. Because without those bloodlines of the indigenous Ethiopian house of Israel, they couldn't in 1948. They had a whole military operation whereby Jews were taken from Sudan to Israel and destabilize Ethiopia through the dirt, through communism, through the Delta Castro coming to Ethiopia, so that this whole yeah um, <laughs> anyway so that's that thank you there I must tell uh, uh, that's basically on that I've been leading a, a movement in Cape Town every year uh for since 2016 it's called the Adwa movement we march to parliament every year I come from George so I, it took me years to establish myself within a community, which is the Rastafari community. My elders, etc., etc., kicked down at Atlantis, where Pongo Dabi is. But I'm from George. So through social media and through using WhatsApp, we were able to establish a tangible movement that has been coming to Parliament annually, every year, delivering a since Zuma. You know, uh, every year we're living a memorandum. So we have tangible praxis, uh, uh, you know, action, reflect action, the pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, etc., etc. So I have tangible experience of what is movement. Then we have this, uh, not in silos, but we have people in Joburg, the Black Farmers Movement, Black, yeah, Black Farmers, and they now currently join forces with us because now we are championing for cannabis industrialization and how cannabis industrialization should not be captured by monopoly capital. You know, we have the people in Stellan Bosch already, Safra has already given licenses to big capitalists so that they can uh, uh, grow medicinal. <coughs> we are not speaking to transforming the economy, you know. Uh, then I have been in civil society for the past 10 years. Five years, I think, uh, activate 2016 after activate with its Somali, we went to Yali, Yali African Leadership Institute, which is USA, Barack Obama. Uh, then this year we did National Youth for Resilience Initiative, which was sponsored by the GIZ, the WESA, activate uh, Department of Women, Children, and People uh, with Disabilities. Uh, we're currently going into Cold Two next year, which is the Amplifier Program. Uh, so my experience within NGO spaces and within civil society is that you will give these egotistical activists that do not want to complain that they are post-structuralists in their thinking. They don't want to understand that they are dealing with identity politics and they are not dealing with neocoloniality. They're not speaking to pan-Africanism because we do not need to uh, educate each other that we must love Africa if we understand what pan-Africanism is. We understand the gender things. To understand uh, the, the founding of the EU in 1963 and why we have a gender So, we don't even have a hundred years of having an institution that was established in Addis Ababa, the Monrovia group, the Casablanca group, and where all of those dynamics, Kwame Nkrumah and Nixela said, disagreed about creating a federal Africa, etc., etc. Then we can take that to uh, the Black Panther, whereby the Black Panther represents. Uh, 
T'Challa represents. Uh, I just want to make that T'Challa represents. Uh, I just last year, a few months ago, represents Marcus Garvey. Remember, Marcus Garvey was the bias for the Portuguese thing, and then so if you can understand, you understand literary scholarship and literary criticism and cultural uh, understanding, you would be able to understand how Wakanda forever, Wu-Tang forever, and all of those anagrams play into each other. We watched Empire. Uh, the series Empire is basically the red, black, and green logo of Marcus Garvey. Uh, speaks of the line of Judah, it speaks of dynasties, uh, you know, all of these things. But that's just my scope of understanding. I what I'm doing on the grassroots. Uh, but I'm coming here to keep that level of, of, of grief with activists and with civil society spaces and with NGOs, you know. and Middle class graduates that become influencers because they have a BA and they can get a coordinated job at NGO, and then they don't see us that have ranks and files from the grassroots. You know, uh, anyone when we come to Cape Town again 2022, we will be at Parliament. Uh, I will be in George telling police to stop being brutal. You know, we will be forging and then I was a EFF regional spokesperson, I was still an EFF uh, member, I founded EFF at TWC2040, then Gabby, Gabby, blah, blah, blah. So these are people that think and they walk in our, uh, in our, in our bar and they, they don't listen to our wisdom. Who's anyway is wisdom? Blessings, 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 wisdom. Thank you, comrades. Give us a lot to think about. Thank you. I will ask though that uh, all everyone else who contributes maybe keeps it to the maximum time uh, frame. But we had another comment from Rishi in the back. Thank you very much for this. I um, generally, I, I feel like this means to us as in the world of But I want us to remember what I pick up from anybody is that um, things like disinformation, disinformation, um, not having agents in a while, bodies in a those sorts of things are not accidents. These were instrumental, these were land like that. So without accidents or things, I do believe that we do have to um, teach ourselves each other about simple things like loving each other, about simple things like loving our brothers and our sisters who are our brothers and sisters. Because you know, for because the hatred of ourselves as Africans was something that was taught to us. So in order for us to unravel that and unlearn it is for us to do the teaching of the basic things, right? So I'm a, I'm a musician, I'm a rapper, and what I have noticed um, with my storytelling and how I'm really asking about um, women, being a woman, I speak about my um, my experiences, I speak about how we can unravel our hurt, I speak about things that, and what I have noticed is that a lot of people, when they do speak, watch me perform, and hear what I have to say, this is sometimes the first time that they experience a rapper, especially in South Africa or Africa in particular, that actually addressing the people we are going through. If I have to ask us now, the, the, the main deal of Ireland that South Africa is like, which hip hop artists on the radio, most especially, is talking about the things that we like corruption? And instead, we're going to be talking about parties, we're going to be talking about 
um, not expecting each other, all of these things that mainstream media and mainstream education has indoctrinated as well. And yes, we can blame people, but that's kind of thing, because we all should understand, but we have to understand it to take the way things from the um, Things like what on the Jason and the Jason said in the Congo, all these things, we cannot even put these things on that. Like in schools, <coughs> history, we learn about the Cold War, still this way. And the thing is, this is about the hope that's connected with our story that we are the young people, because we are being real into things that are not going to make us feel better. Um, so now you're interested in this unconsciously education. And you might be unconsciously your own community because that is not the intention of education of the LGBT and the mission of the LGBT and the spaces that they have too. So thank you very much for spaces like this because what we usually have this. So I think <clears throat> I think that it's not with the thing. Okay, I believe that us as the majority, we do not we have a lot of fear because we don't understand that we are. The majority. The reason why the, the, the taking away the agency of our bodies with, you know, everything that's happening now is taking longer than it's taking because we were actually expected to go to the just time. That was actually the, the, the plan to keep satisfying the main time that we get afraid and put our dependency on the government has no interest in us. We have interest in us. So we have to open up spaces um, ourselves in the space our body conscious for the purpose of the internet that create these kind of um, thank you very much for this point. Um, you know, two specific things that really kind of spoke to me was, you know, where arts and culture fits in our mobilizing and in our leadership building. Um, how we can, you know, get art to be, you know, what it was during the anti-apartheid um, time period. But and then also about schooling, you know, and I think just just touching on what Mandy said, and maybe Mandy, you can respond to this specifically around Rose Must Fall and Peace Must Fall. And there's actually a couple of uh, activists in the room as well, so maybe you guys can also speak to this. But Mandy, you were saying that you know when you were in grade nine, you had already encountered Marxism and you know, now in 2021, we're, we're living in a rainbow nation. And as Samantha said, our education systems are, you know, not up to standards, not, we aren't even learning our own history. And then during these must fall and roads must fall, um, you know, I was very privileged to have encountered a lot of this history before through people like Mandy. Um, and a lot of times during these must fall and roads must fall, it felt like the young activists were just making up you know, as they went along. And that was the reality, you know, we were in the space, in the tertiary institutions, fighting against this, you know, institution and essentially just making up um, our leadership structures, how we operate and how we function. So, so Mandy, I guess my question is, how do we ensure this passing on of knowledge from these different generations of activists? Um, as it was during your, um, you know, coming of age politically with the Cicero Isos and Marcus Solomons, because right now, as it stands, I would say a lot of students and youth activists and where we find ourselves and just kind of, you know, making it up as we go along, educating ourselves, finding this knowledge ourselves. So how do we create a pathway? Well, I think we, 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 mustn't, we must avoid the mistake. So the school I came from, the idea was elders 
teach you about how to struggle, then you go out and you, you replicate what they, they do. That was a mistake of the unity movement. And they shrunk because they're unable to keep pace with how things are changing around them. And so at no point do I want what I was saying to be, as I said, a checklist of how to struggle. It should rather be, how do we listen, pay attention, um, be kind, make sure we as inclusive as possible, and that we, we, we use participatory methods to engage people. Because this kind of forum is useful, but if it becomes the only way we engage, and then we on the streets, um, we're missing out lots of voices. We become uh, sort of, uh, we're constantly looking for role model. We're constantly looking for people who are our heroes. And we, we, we forget to find our voice. So I think the point really that I had with the Roads Must Fall people was that they, they were establishing all these heroes as memes mm. and then trying to get people to follow and, and jumping over a number of stages. But I think what's important is even the Roads Must Fall, Fees Must Fall movement is part of the act of us collectively finding our voice. Because what they do is they surface the issues in struggle. So whatever mistakes we made, the main point I think is we have to constantly be reflective, right? So I, I think we might just avoid this thing of using situations like this to promote our brand. <laughs> because that's what, uh, that's psychologically what I think all of us as human beings are becoming in this world. So it should be more like, if I had control over this meeting, I would have gone from these inputs to smaller groups, to, to doing what is called open space technology, because there are a hell of a lot of people here with experience. You see, and what, uh, you know, it would have been really nice to have, have, have had more people sharing their experiences and having encounters between young and old rather than a linear kind of relationship between young and old. Uh, we need to also learn from, from young people's experiences. We don't understand the world you experiencing today. It's very different to the world we experience. I don't know if the elders here can, 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 <laughs> feel can, the same. Can, can I add something to what she said? <laughs> No, no, but it's a different world. Let me ask something to what she said with a practical example. Um, if you are familiar with uh, Nigerian uh, uh, politics or Nigerian history, there is a man called Femi Falana. He's the most prominent human rights lawyer living today. It is said that as for all his life, he has almost done all his work for free representing poor community, taking up human rights cases. Him and his wife are activists. Now, they have a son who is a prominent actor and musician today. Now, they trained that boy in the UK because they were afraid, because if sold out to activism, they don't know what would happen to them. So people helped them, took that boy to the UK. But before the boy went to the UK, he seen the life of his parents, 
read all the activism book, read all the Marxism book, study the Lord, come out first class. You would have thought that uh, somebody who grew up in the UK and had a first class degree in law would come back and be elitist. He came back and decided to use apps, create skits, sang songs. And when you go on social media today, he has more followers than his father and his mother that has spent over 50 years in activism because he presented activism in the language and in the medium that the younger generation understood. So he took the knowledge from his parents and then packaged it in the, 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 the medium of today. Now his dad asked him a question. You know, funny enough, his dad was very angry when he said he was going to be a musician. And then people persuaded, said, leave him. And then when the guy released his first album, the dad came there. Then the father was crying. The father asked him, ha, ah, did you get these messages in your song? He said, but daddy, I was reading all the books in the house. And so knowledge is relevant. But to answer that question, the youth have to take the knowledge and use it according to the context of today, according to what their generation understands. There are things that I don't understand. There are things that I understand that uh, Reverend Busak don't understand because of my time. But there are things that he knows that I don't know. And there are things that I know that the people younger than me don't know. So when you get it, Take it, run with it. Okay, uh, children, uh, I'm pleased to say that there are certain people in this room who follow the conversation and things. Um, so there are uh, comments in the chat, um, but there are people with their hands raised. Should we take it Yes, yes, yes. So there's this one delay. I don't know if you are there. Okay. Um, we're going to yeah, attempt to, to hear you, which you have your address. So, Wabili, go. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Thank, thank you, Chair, and thanks to the panelists. Uh, I don't know if I'm audible um, enough. Um, yes, Th thank you very much. I, I will be quick. I, I just uh, feel that, um, you know, I, I shared my thing in the chat because I wasn't sure if I would be given this opportunity to at least defend you know, the position or rather share my views on the roads must fall as somebody who was part and parcel of the formation of the roads must fall movement. Because I think, I think it's important for us to understand really the, you know, the point that mm -hmm. uh, roads must fall really posed, I think an important and a critical and a necessary question to today's discourse. And, uh, and I feel that uh, you know, it, is, uh, it is important for us to be fair in our critique of the Roads Must Fall movement as a formation that took its own ideological position in how it uh, unconventionally uh, addressed the question of white supremacy in society and how it confronted that question. And that unconventional approach to it, I must say that uh, it angered you know, uh, some of, you know, the activists from the Mendy generation, people who felt that were too forthcoming in how we actually address these questions. 
And when the same activists of Roads Must Fall were uh, arrested at parliament and charged with high treason for demanding free education that was promised by the ruling party, we never had you know, the voices of uh, the, the 1980s generation or the elders uh, standing in defense of these young activists who actually carried on or took the baton from them. And when they were arrested for demanding free education, we never had voices from the elders uh, in defense of these young activists. And today we are see, we hear voices, uh, we see you know, these uh, roads must fall and fees must fall activists being labeled as rebels. When we actually operate in a system that um, you know that 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 you know that that pushes you know you know black you know young people to actually rebel against the system itself, because the very system itself has you know used its own you know machinery to suppress these voices, and and my concern is that when we then have these platforms, looking back at the role of roads must fall. It seems to me that we are not really being fair in our critique against or our critique against the movement, when in fact the movement itself resuscitated some of the discussions that we are actually having today. For example, the issue of decolonization. It didn't start with Rose Must Fall, it started way back, but Rose Must Fall as a movement resuscitated these discussions that we actually find pride in today. And yet when we refer to the activists who are pushing that RMF agenda, we tend to label them in negative ways. And I find that to be uh, you know, disingenuous uh, from our elders or from those who were activists in the 1980s. And I think that's where I think on my side, I feel that we really need to be fair in our criticism. But in terms of the conversation that we're having today, it is an important conversation the intergenerational or intragenerational conversation that we're having here, it's an important one to look at how society, how we should actually, as a people, look into issues of how we deal with what society is becoming and look at the question of what we are dealing with today, the issue of mandatory vaccines, which is one of the issues that you know, has divided society into two. You know, on one hand, there's an issue of, um, you know, of the infringement on people's, you know, constitutional rights, those who do not want to be, you know, uh, given this false, uh, you know, vaccines. And on the other side, there's an issue of, of um, you know, of scientists and government who's actually pushing and cajoling people into taking this, you know, these mandatory vaccines. So these are questions that we need to have a conversation about. But thank you very much, Chair. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to... Hi, may I, may I come in? Uh, I'm going to use Surya and Charles to, to, to make a comment, uh, and then we'll uh, revert back to this. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I love the input that spoke about identity is complex and not fixed because that's who I am. <laughs> I don't like people to classify me because that classification is a party classification. Because I have caste mixed breed, I'm a thoroughbred human being and people must stop wanting to ask what my nationality is because I'm, I don't belong Indian or colored or African or white as a human being. So 
I think that must be understood. So I love that input of identity is complex and not fixed. Thank you so much, Wandila. You really made my day today. Because when you spoke about the question of the vaccination, the vaccination for me is a dompass. Internationally, it's a dompass. You must carry that certification around with you to prove you've been vaccinated. It is the opinion of people who have an opinion that we must be and blah, blah, blah. But there's no right or wrong. It's only an opinion that I'm expressing. So please, I'm, I'm here to make sure an old woman is also heard. Okay, can, can, can I just finish quickly? Because it's about the question of opinion and how people have the opinion. And presently, the stability is the foremost need in our country. This is to be done in order for peace building to avoid chaos. We already had the chaos with COVID that's still going on, plus the, the rampage by the criminality in politics that took place. And I tell you, I saw a young man that had been beaten up for playing soccer in KZN. He is crippled for life now. Because who did it? Want to protect their property when you don't want to protect humanity? Please let us get and win our humanity back. I thank you.
And I think what's so interesting about an event like this is the retelling of a certain narrative that needs to happen. You know, um, it's true you see Palestine in the news and the chaos and all that, but we're very similar, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you guys have the Rainbow Kit. Yeah. We have the Nation Building Project there. They're, they're both fading and they're both eluding the, 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 the funny thing about rainbows, you can never cross under the rainbow. That's part of the illusion. Keep going and move with it. And so that's kind of the thing we're, we're having to deal with at home as well. Um, so not to be too long to labor this, but um, I, I was really struck by the thing you were talking about, the trains. And, and kind of those spaces. And, and how do you then sustain that energy? Because oh, we know it's, it's, it's difficult, it's hard, and, and, and it's tiring. You know, God bless her, the, the energy that this woman has. Um, but it's time. Anybody who's engaged in these social movements realizes it's time. But the worst than the actual heaviness of it is when you receive to your private place and that numbness and that apathy that comes with that and that isolation that comes with that and so spaces like these you know regardless of all of these differences and all these things that you know we all care about it's, it's the spaces that matter it's having these spaces and you know where's under it like the, the surplus is like such a beautiful space you know to, uh, to find homes Places where we can talk about our grievances, but also be in communion, be, be safe together. You know? um, and so, I guess my question to all of you is how do we have this type of event resonate and mushroom everywhere? How do we make more spaces like this? How do we engage the arts to, to, to have more spaces like this? In
Volume. Yes. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. I think I, I was saying I think they they were starting to follow up, you know, or discuss and things. But I think I think uh, I think after uh, the critique 
find a solution that facilitates on what thought was an unfair critique on the race of feminism. Today's question was just to an innovation of species. I want to ask if the feminist has reflection of what is your Yeah, where our conversations become circular about our, our own, you know, 
introduced as experience of struggle in our university. Offering was this speak about civil participation of all communities. So, yeah, the conversation has not gone that way, despite the fact that all the panelists are the same. And I think, regardless of how what you think of the institution, that's a self evident and that is what is the option. So, I would like to talk a bit more about the options that are now created recently, but some of you have been doing this for years, I think, to the South African like Shell, not talk about. The, the difficulties that you experience in certain areas of the medicine. Sorry, how much time is still going to give? Um, they, they are, there's one person who wants to make a comment on Zoom. Um, I think we I would maybe just like to reiterate um, the last comrade's point. If, if there are still any comments and questions, we can bring it back to the objective of this meeting. Um, and as we also don't have a lot of time, we can also move maybe towards an understanding of what the next steps could be and, and how we can move forward creatively if that is possible. Um, so there are still a few hands, and if I can ask you guys, we just keep it very short, and then we can maybe hear final thoughts um, from the speakers and how we can record it. Uh, yes. Um, so I want to talk about how do we move forward in this inclusion in like activist space? And you mentioned how we want this activism space to grow and grow and all these things, but I feel like people in that. This space really are kind of gatekeeping the sense where it's this great one dimensional view of what activism is. We want to parliament in this red and sit inside and we have packets and boards, and that is all it is. When there are people in different kinds of industries, I can be trying to be some fashion, who are actively trying to eradicate its location of workers, trying to revise the work that this takes our industry to create more people again. But what do you say today? You're not an activist because I was in a launch. I didn't speak to that kind of discussion, so you were not an activist. So can we start really redefining activism? What does it mean? I feel like we should start with teaching every space wherever we are, whether it's a school in church, whichever industry you find and whatever. But activism is not this one dimensional thing of we march in the sun, and if you don't do that, then you cannot have any of you.
also in the case of love and the intention of going once they feel that they feel the people have that. Because I feel to a certain extent it avoided contrasting these people in the name of some collective whatever they are, I'm mentioning him because I'm trying to say that 
Very obvious when I was speaking to him about politics, right? He said, I was talking about that in this world. The only thing that I understand, not all of us are interested in this. I'm not a political person, which is the whole process of a lot of people. But I think which what that we need to understand more, I guess, is the fact that everything is political. Fashion is political. Social media is political. Food is political. Hunger is political. And I want to make an example of what came out. Like, as you know, all the songs or whatever, everything is major gentrification right now. And the two things that I've talked about from since I think four years ago when we started five was um, there are more restaurants. And there are more homeless people that are hungry. That's the lesson. Like if, if, if we are all in the school, right? And all of us have these food is the all of us have these, and if one person is hungry, should finish. Because if I'm very, very hungry, you are very, very, very hungry. And let's see, let's just imagine the majority of us here. All of us are here, then besides, and they are all hungry. I'm going to finish. We feel we all have to be. Conscious of the fact that our lives are political, and how I would um, imagine mindful um, for us actually bringing those spaces, those political spaces, of us, which is um, the, the, the initial areas for each other, but especially for ourselves, because our mind, we ourselves, so then we have to, you know, we are being influenced, we have to be aware of this, we have to make change if we start by ourselves. Um, so that initial care should start off by you know taking care of ourselves so we can be able to take care of our families. And that means that wherever we go, whichever spaces that we go to, we will take that politics with us. I do not go to clubs and, and, and I'm never ever surrounded by Jesse that's going to tolerate a woman who disrespected her or anything funny than I have brothers that pull us out for the other brothers. That's the space that we the same way you know all of our comments all over the book we share the same thing which is you know we don't like the system the system is um anti our lives so Yes, somebody there. Hi, yes, I want to echo the Thank you. 
but I wasn't able to articulate that. Um, so I'm wondering what advice you might have for how we can articulate that and create spaces that restore balance to all of us um, in ways that don't propagate something problematic that we don't want to be part of. Thank you. I, I just want to firstly thank everyone for um, helping to obviously learn and form different ways of thinking. And I think that that's for me what I want to draw on is definitely what Matt said earlier about participating. And I think to me, this is participation. And most that goes hand in hand with participation is learning. And I think we don't use this opportunity to realize how much there is yet to learn in ourselves. Um, it will be an injustice to why we come together and have gatherings like this. But on a very intrinsic level, um, why we actually in the streets kind of see each other and not use that opportunity to see someone who's different to us to learn something. And I think whenever there's contrast in our experiences, we need to start thinking about why am I experiencing a contrast to what I know and use that as an opportunity to learn. Um, and second to that is, I think that we're missing something, maybe the other ones in this space, and I'm included, is that we have these spaces because of people like Professor Busak and because of Nandi, and because of people who have formed, I'm uh, sorry, so I forgot your name. Barry. Barry. Sorry? Barry. 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 So, um, people like yourself were able to move from the comfort of maybe a home back and come to a new country and not use that as an opportunity to understand why this person is here. People come from Afghanistan, people come from America. We will continue to miss these opportunities to learn why we're actually engaging with each other and why we're here on a human day before our struggle, before gender based violence, before racism, before hunger. These things are a layer of the deeper part, which is the fact that we are humans, but we are made very different. And so if we were the same, there would be nothing to learn. We learn to walk because we can't, we learn to talk because we can't, we learn things because we cannot prevent this. And I think we need to start thinking about why there is so much to learn because we cannot do these things. Okay, so. So I think many we can start with we work our way. Please, can I plead that Professor speaks last? <laughs> Please. Uh, I am, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm serious because I think on this table, he carries three generations of experience. So maybe. But that's what you said. Yes. So, let, let, him, let him speak last. Okay. So, um, I mean, I don't want to really respond to one deal because I think one deal is responding to critique of the Rosa for movement that, that happened elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear what he was saying as being spoken in this room mm -hmm. because I think we spoke about the importance of the movement and how it surfaced important questions. In fact, it, it jogged us into. Um, I do, I ever want to say, one being works at a museum 
and I work at the museum. And when the road must all people who are cry, we opened up our museum for people who went to the court to dance on our tables and we had to beg them, don't destroy our exhibition. I don't think Wandile opened up Easy Coats. I'm just saying Wandile. <laughs> but I do believe uh, my relation Wandile is uh, incredible. I've learned a lot. I think intellectually is incredibly strong. And I think to just miss him as just um, someone who's, who's, who's kind of ego-driven is, is also limited. But I think uh, it is important for us to really um, interrogate the roads must fall, fall and fees must fall movement in the way we must do any movement yes. we are involved in. Yes. So that's the point. Yes. It's not particular about the roads must fall. Mm. Anything we engage in, the same issues are going to emerge with the anti-shell movement. Mm. You know, we are working class people. Um, you know, we are the people uh, in our, our townships, in our urban spaces engaged in. So I think that's a, the, the, the one point. The point about like there are lots of people talking about what inclusive spaces mean for them. And a lot of people like, you know, like social entrepreneurs feeling, oh my God, uh, you know, we come into these spaces, the language scares me off. And then other, and it might be real, might be a real experience for you. In your case in America, um, you know, too many communist white activists, what about the black experience? It might be real for you. My concern, however, is for that ordinary mummy and puppy in our working class communities, uh, me, how are we creating safe spaces for them? In most places, you, university, educated people, business-driven people, you have power in society. So if you've been scared off by what people are saying, I can't find as much empathy for that as I find for a factory worker who, for instance, if they were, if we had to bring factory workers struggling with just basic um, uh, issues of living, surviving, being fed, giving access to their kids to decent housing, and we had to bring them in this space. Um, I'd be concerned that alienating we are talking about how we're going to solve the problems of basically those people's lives. That's a colonial phase, basically. You know, we are arrogant enough to want to solve the problem of the most oppressed and exploited people in our country and the world without them. So for me, that's the first. And we we must decide how the social entrepreneurs are, or however you define yourselves, hang on to that. And the way to do it for me is, I think we have to center these issues. The real issues in South Africa today, in terms of I assess it is we've got a real problem of public schooling. Each day goes by and we're traumatizing new generations of people by not giving them access to quality education. How are we fighting for that? I think the issue of affordable housing, how are we joining the movement of reclaiming the city who's struggling, right? They're going into spaces to fight around real things that will change what you call black people's lives. Who are these black people in black spaces? For me, 
keeping in black spaces don't necessarily change the condition under which the great majority of black people live. If you saw public education, public housing, food security, public health, freedom of movement, and access to public spaces, if we solve those issues, we solve it for the great majority of people in this country. And who are those? The great majority of people in this country, 80% are probably black that you talk about. 85% are black that I talk about, Pico black, right? Politically black, all shades of black. And I think for me, that's, that's a big issue. And I think I've, I've, all people who are talking about issues of exclusion, for me, the issues, all other issues of exclusion and feeling your voice is not heard is, is what's the word? It's sub, what's the English word? It's subservient to the exclusion of the great majority of people and, and solving these issues. I think that's what we must apply our mind to in activism. And of course, the environment. If we don't have, if we fight for these, but we lose the earth, what does it matter? So, um, yeah, and I really think you must avoid American uh, analysis, approach to struggle, it's toxic. Uh, the idea of black and African there is that someone who's never been in Africa will not listen to me, who's only ever been in Africa. And so I think we must then turn our gaze, I think, to Africa. That's the Africa and the struggle of oppressed people around the world. Sorry, thank you. Sorry for being here. Okay. Um, first, um, Chia, thank you very much. And thank you to the organizers. My first response is, I feel like perhaps when we came here, we should have asked people to tell us what they expect. In fact, maybe we would have asked people to give us um, their questions and expectations because most of the questions are questions that had been born in the heart of people even before this program was put together. And then we then respond to those questions. Linked to that, I want to respond to what my comrade right at the back says. One meeting can never be enough. And so I would want to plead with the organizers of this program, don't be despondent. Take it that this is the beginning of many meetings and it has to be continued. Maybe the approach and the modality will change from time to time. Also linked to that, I want to say that you don't become an activist with an optic approach overnight. It takes a generation. And so some of the inputs we have seen here today, I can assure you that in five years time, it will change. In 10 years, it will change. In 20 years, it will be better. And then may I also quickly add that it is not everybody that work within an NGO that is an activist. 
Let's get that clear. An activist may work in an NGO and it is dangerous to get an activist to be molded within an NGO. That is something I want us to understand. In fact, NGOization of struggle and funding seems to be more of a problem than a solution because the NGO, the funders and the NGO structure want you to write your five point report and all of that. And sometimes the issues on the ground um, is not responding to the points that the NGOs want. I think that is a big issue. However, activists are very creative. That one of the problems we have is that within the dispensation of NGOization of struggles, most of the activists are not creative enough to be able to manage and balance the, the, the whole thing because you need the funds, but you need to address the issue. And um, now, I will not respond to every question, but as it comes, how do we deal with betrayers? Friends, there will always be betrayers. I'm going, to, I'm going to be deceiving you if I tell you that there is a way that an organization or a movement can grow to come ready. You are the one to ask about betrayers, that um, you will come to a point where people will not betray you. Betrayer is an issue of maybe an individual weakness or inability to deal with um, temptations, betrayer will always come. And betrayer incidentally has nothing to do with your racial background. Um, in the movement, our father here will, 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 will say whether I'm wrong. There were a lot of black people that betrayed the apartheid, the anti-apartheid movement. And so it is not true that every white person is automatically an oppressor. And it is not true that every black person is automatically a progressive. I think we need to open our mind to that. Now, why do I say that? During the apartheid movement, um, my, re my reading shows that workers in Norway, workers in Denmark, workers in Australia, workers in America, white uh, 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 unions, workers in Canada contributed money to support the fight against apartheid. And so the definition of capitalism or capitalists, we need to be very careful so that we do not demonize people simply because of their racial or their coloration because it is about consciousness. We should differentiate between people's identity and institutionalized capitalism. Now that brings me to the question of the social entrepreneur. Is a social entrepreneur a problem in itself by being a social entrepreneur? No, a social entrepreneur or an entrepreneur that, I'm, that I, I work hard 
and then I, I reap the fruit of my labor does not make me a capitalist. Reverend has written a lot of books. So if tomorrow, for example, Hollywood comes and decide to pick one of his book and then make it into a movie and pay Reverend $10 million, which I know he will share a little with me. Does that make Reverend a capitalist? No. We then will expect that, and we know that with his years of involvement and in the struggle, Reverend might say, okay, my work has earned me $10 million. Maybe it will be left to his conscience. Then we will check his conscience to see what does he do to the community from the $10 million that he earns. Now, then let me answer some of the other questions with the example from our place. What did we do that we got to where we are? Movement for the survival of Ogoni people was the umbrella movement. But there were nine affiliates and structures. There was a structure for the students in high school. There was a structure for the youth. There was a structure for women. There was a structure for traditional people. There was a structure for um, people in university. There was a structure for different people, nine different. There was a professional structure and business people. Now, what happens is the environment and to defend our environment and to fight against Shell was our unifying factor. And so the students would relate to the issues that is being raised by the movement according to their own reality and according to their own space. Now, it was agreed that the apex structure or the umbrella structure, which was made up of representative of the nine affiliates, do not impose a decision on the affiliate movements. So what every affiliate does is that they come back with reports according to what they have on the ground. If you read my piece in Daily Maverick a couple of days ago, I said something that um, the Ogoni people were able to explain um, the changes in their environment from the observations of farmers and women and fishermen. Now those observations, when you read your Goni Bill of Rights, you will see a very beautiful narrative of the degradation of the environment written by um, an industrial chemist. But it was a report of farmers. It was a report of fishermen. It was a daily lived experience that he explained with the beauty of the language of a very informed person. What does that tell us? That people at the grassroots level are not able to explain things in your um, Oxford English does not mean they don't have experience. Those of us who have the ability and the grace to be able to write some of these things will have to live with those who live with the daily experience. And those who don't have the ability to write or to communicate this in or to intellectualize these things should also have the um, ability or the grace to be willing to collaborate with those that have different skills. My point is there is always differentiated but common interests. And how do we create um, more political spaces 
uh, to accommodate the whole uh, range of interests. First, don't be deceived that we will come to a point where everybody, even within the left, will come to an agreement. The point is, what is the aggregate? What is the, the, the um, what will I say? The depth of mobilization and how much are we able to, at a particular time, push principled position to inform. There are people that will agree with your principle, but they will not agree with your approach. And there are people that will agree with your approach, but they will not agree with your principles. And so you, we should be able to know when a movement is going on. Even in the, in the 60s, uh, uh, Reverend, when um, uh, Pan-Africanism was the thing, or nationalism was the thing, it wasn't everybody that agreed necessarily. So, but there are, when, the pro, when people call a protest or when people are making a move and you agree with the approach, why not? If people are calling, a, 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 if a movement is going on and you agree with the principle, why not? So we will never come to that point. Lastly, please, um, our comrade asked what, how does I, the individual, what, how do I participate in the movement? If you come into a movement or if you come into a space and you find it difficult to concede to other people's opinion or a generally agreed opinion, even when it does not agree with you, then you need a lot of work to do because very three things humbles a person, education, spirituality, and culture. If you come and say you are very educated and you come to a place or you are part of a movement and you have left the depth of education does not tell you that the more educated you, be, you are, the more ignorant you are, there is a problem with your education. If you want to approach the struggle spiritually and you, you, you claim to be deep spiritual person and you cannot humble yourself and then be honest and then be willing to honor others, there is a problem. If you claim to be somebody that is cool and grounded in culture and you do not know that no culture is inherently superior to the other and none is inferior to the other, and that culture is everybody's interpretation of their humanity and their dignity, and you are not willing to concede and respect other culture, then there is a problem. So like when people come and um, you bash the church, it is unfortunate that you don't know what the church or churches did, Reverend will be able to tell you, towards our liberation. And just as maybe um, Muslim movement did a lot. So let me end it there by saying the underlying word is discipline, tolerance, and accountability. Thank you. Yeah.
I mean, the title of this event was Common Ground. Yeah. I don't think many people that, uh, that, that is still there when we, we came up. Um, I think. Before we see to the negative it's very problematic because if we don't see critique, or if we don't welcome critique and criticism, then it's difficult for us to unlearn. Um, the comrade talked about learning. We've learned quite a lot already. And for us to learn new things, we need to unlearn. And for us to be able to do that, we need to welcome critique. We don't always have to agree with critique and criticism, but we need to welcome it. That's going to allow us to introspect. And that's going to allow us to reflect on our actions and the way we engage on it. This, for me, the engagements here um, were important in the way we, and what we saw coming up was very important so that we know, uh, get to see and get to learn how these things pan out. Movement, movement building is complex. Movement building is not easy. It's very complex. And here we are at, at this point in time, at least all privileged enough to engage in English in the same language, which means we are all in an elite position. The 80% population I talked about of black people um, as in the legal sense, 40% of those people speak Afrikaans. 40% of those people speak Kosa. It would have been difficult for them to engage here. And so that's something that's important for us to, to reflect on. Why we understand that we have our own issues uh, in, in terms of engaging. Um, I think what, what Comrade Mendy spoke about was that we need to think about people uh, in our organizing. Uh, and not necessarily center ourselves too much, uh, but think about the 80% the, the that I'm speaking about, that is not here. Um, that is not privileged enough to have taxi money to come and get here. That is not privileged enough to live next door to this venue. That is not privileged or would not have been privileged enough to understand what we're saying here because they do not speak the same English or the same level of English that we are that we are speaking about. We also need to understand the idea of conflict in a more healthier way. We can never build movements where there won't be any conflict. But again, what is important is reflecting on that, introspective on that, and then unlearning uh, what we do and how we do. And so towards movement building, for me, that's really important. If we're able to unlearn and we are able to disrupt, then we are able to regulate. Because all of us came here because we view and see politics in a way that they do not include us. But then we come and, and in, in, in such spaces and, and practice the same politics. Yeah. And we do not unlearn. And so in order for us to understand the politics of care, um, the politics, uh, feminized politics, and all those types of, types of terms, it's important for us to, 
and learn and do away with the politics that we, we come from. I come from ACB Society Organization, the Social Justice Coalition, and the likes of the Treatment Addiction Campaigns, Equalification. All of them have problematic politics. They might be seen as progressive um, or radical civil society organizations, but all of them, they are problematic politics. But what is important is to reflect on those and criticize and criticize ourselves, introspect, unlearn, disrupt, and, and, and rebuild. So I think towards finding common ground. Um, and, and, and I mean, one of the most important criticisms that I took out of this space <coughs> is what Mandy said about the setup of the space, which means that we need to unlearn and do better next time in terms of how we are going to engage in this space, that this setup is problematic. And that is a critique that is very important. And so we need to unlearn and come back, maybe as the, the, the next step for moving forward to here, and come back and do this differently. Maybe we will achieve a, a different outcome than we did today. Um, thank you very much. Um, much, uh, of course, has already been said, and I wanted to start with what Akalile just mentioned in terms of the basic motivation why we were called to come together here today and what it means to seek common ground. And he has spoken very eloquently about that. Thank you so much. And thank you to my two panelists um, from whom I have learned again so much today. So you seek common ground because you realize there is none. Or you seek common ground because you see that we are so fractured and so splintered or so reinforced in old fractions ideas that we find it hard to move towards a single clear-cut understandable goal. So that's how we came together today. So today's conversation, as many people have said over and over, <laughs> today's conversation um, is, is a beginning. But when I talk to my two colleagues to my right, first, uh, when we discuss the possibility of such a meeting, I said to them, the idea is, in my mind, you bring together representatives of organizations. You talk through the issues that are important for you. You set the agenda. I'm not here to come and speak. I'm here to respond to what you put on the table. That's number one. And then your representatives of your organizations take that back to their organizations, break it down, as people say. In your organization, say to yourselves, what is it that I can share with my organization that I have learned that can help us in the issues that we are bringing together? And then the third step is how do we bring all these issues together to serve the common goal, continuing building the common ground towards where we think we ought to be going. So that's the process I had in mind. And that's the process I think we had agreed on. And so that's why we are here today. So all of the things that we have heard 
are things that we will filter. But just as much as people bring critique to the process, we will bring critique to what you say, because that's how it goes. That is the reciprocity of revolutionary movements um, that we take and learn from each other. I would like to say, uh, therefore, that I think today was an excellent beginning. Thank you for, for bringing us together. Thank you for having this idea. Thank you for coming. I don't only speak uh, from my own experience. My, my political coming of age was in the Black consciousness movement. But my growing into my participation in the broader struggle first uh, for the freedom of our people in this country, and then growing broader to see how much that is linked to a global struggle for justice and freedom um, for more people than just South Africans. And so the Palestinians play an extraordinarily important role in my growth and in what I see today as a struggle. For my understanding of what we are about in this country is that this is a revolution. Now the revolution takes on different shapes. Um, in the 1950s, it was the defiance campaigns and then that evolved into what the black consciousness movement became, 1976. 1980s uh, and the United Democratic Congress. So revolution for me is not one cataclysmic event, one violent event where one thing happens and one class is replaced by another class. And that I, I see it as much more an open process where you begin and things recede or things are calmed down or things are forced to come down like happened in this country. And then another something happens and it never dies. It never dies. The embers keep on glowing, but it takes another generation. It takes another event to make those embers into a fire. 1976 was almost as if there were fires all over the country. What the United Democratic Front did was to bring all of those different fires into one big, huge flame. Uh, that engulfed the country in a way that we haven't seen before. Um, we can learn a lot from that. One of the things that I think that made the UDF so radical, thinking back on what Mandy was saying, and what made the UDF in one of those things that the South African government did not expect and did not know how to handle, is instead of building on the older models of an urban working class society only, the United Democratic Front went into the rural areas in a way that no other organization could have ever done. And, and, and so all of a sudden, in the small places, in Uppington and Karkamas and Kemus and Stutterheim and Fer and those places, all of a sudden you had waves of people coming together, doing stuff that was only happening in the cities up until then. Um, that caught everybody off guard, but it also gave a sense of participation, a sense of dignity, a sense of agency to our people in the most conservative and oppressive areas in our country. 
It's one thing when you march in Cape Town and you march to Parliament, but you have, you have prominent leaders here to protect you. And you have the media, not the South African media, then at least the media from outside to project what you're saying. And so you get sympathy. And, and those cameras act sometimes as a kind of a deterrent to the worst abuses of the South African police. In Kakamas, they did not have that. In Oatswaran, they did not have that. But when we led a march in Oatswaran, 10,000 people down the main street, the idea was to go and, 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 and hand over some kind of document to the police. When we got there, and I thought it was over, the people whispered in my ear, near dog wasn't of a climb. There is a, there's an army base down at the end of the town. We marching to the army base. I did not go there for the army base. I went for the police and was ready for that confrontation. I wasn't ready for the, for the confrontation <laughs> with the army, but the people were ready. Mm. And so what happens in that situation? You don't say, yes, but I came only for this part of the march. You say, what are your priorities? What is it that you want us to do? Why did you bring me here? And then you go with the people because you know that once I leave, now I get in my car, I drive back to Cape Town, but tomorrow, all those people whose photographs were taken, we are not there from Cape Town to protect them. The BBC television that came with us on Saturday will not be there on Sunday. The police will pick them all up. They are totally vulnerable. And still they did it. Now, that is what you call mobilization that is more than just the organization that exists. That is what we need to understand about what that means when people are caught up in a spirit of things. That's why today they talk about the spirit of the UDS, that's part of it. And that is what I'm hoping that we can build through what we start here today. Now, this is not the only initiative, there are other initiatives, I know. So let those other initiatives reveal themselves and then you can decide are is there common ground are there issues on which we are so agreed that we can work together and we can build on that thing one of the things about uh, the roads must fall and i agree with mandy that we did not simply say nasty things here about about uh, the roads must fall movement in my observations my con conversations with the students in those times, I raised a number of issues. One, I said to them, I think what you're doing is wonderful because you have taken an issue that is important for you, but you must link that issue of the fees must fall to the fact that our children are prevented from going to the universities because our parents are too poor. Mm -hmm. And that our children are prevented from participating in university as they should because of the education that they get before they go to university. So they come to university totally unprepared. And I see that. I teach now uh, for a very short period at the University of Pretoria. I can see the difference between the kids who went to proper schools and the kids who had to make do with the schools in the township and the battle they have. And that is why I would say to my students, your first assignment is not good. And because you did not understand what the assignment was asking, do you mind if we set up a Zoom conversation just between the two of us?
And so then we talk through your assignment and you go and you write, I'm not gonna submit this point because I don't think this is a good mark and you deserve that. Mm -hmm. And we have that conversation for an hour, an hour and a half long. They go back, they write that, that, that assignment over, they submit that assignment and the marks are very much different. Mm. But that's how you've got to spend time because you've got to keep in mind, that's the first thing. I said also to the students, you know, all of you guys are at university. But ever, and, and you've been doing this 2015, 2016, but ever since 1998, there have been daily protests in the townships on service delivery. Lots of those protests are driven by young people. There are townships, young people who have not been able after high school to come to university like you. There are township young people who have not been able to even finish their schooling like you did. Have you ever thought what would happen? You think you are radical, I think you're great, but would you ever think what would have happened if your cause could be connected to the cause of those young people and you bring what they stand for together with what you stand for, what is, what is the difference in that kind of revolution then? So I don't think they ever succeeded in doing that, but that was maybe because there were too many interruptions and all sorts of things, but, but that is something that we need to think about. What is it, what happens when you bring the causes together and you begin to see that the problems that the students have at university with the government are fundamentally the same problems that the young people in the township had with the government. Service delivery is not so fundamentally different from service delivery in terms of what the university should get. So, so broadening the understanding, deepening the understanding is what I hope that we will do moving onwards from here. But there's a, there's a very important thing that Rose Must Fall did do. The students were not only able to show the importance of symbols. So what does it mean when Cecil John Rhodes is there? What is the symbolic value of that colonialist, imperialist presence on a university campus or in town? That's the one thing. And that has been so successful that it's become such a worldwide movement today in the United States mm -hmm. and in Europe and elsewhere. I mean, I spoke to people in Belgium, led by a young woman in Belgium who came from Congo and, and King Leopold II. And when I asked them the question, what about King Leopold who's under whose rule 10 million Congolese were killed? That's twice the number than the Jewish Holocaust under Hitler. What does that mean? And we don't learn about those things in history. We are not told. We, and, and so they bring that history together with what the United States black people are doing with that history. And that is why that movement is so powerful. Make those connections. Don't isolate yourself from, from those things. It's not just about the, it's important that the symbol thing of Jan van Riebeek is torn down here. I don't want to see that thing anymore. But what do we put in the place of it? And what the students did is not only did they talk about the symbolic presence of Rhodes, they also asked, what does colonization mean for our education? So now all of a sudden, universities have to sit down and talk about their curriculum. 
What is it that they teach? What books is it that they prescribe? Mm. And those are all important issues that we have to keep together. Don't let it fall. Don't let anything slip through the cracks. Keep it together. It's not that difficult. If you keep yourselves together and you keep yourself connected to those movements, it's not that difficult. So on that basis, inclusivity for me means more than just understanding that we are all in this together. I think one of the things that I regret is that in the United Democratic Front, we, we understood the non-racialism thing and we set an example that still stands today. But I think we, because we said everything must be subservient to the larger goal of our freedom, we never really found the time as a movement to mourn with parents when their children were killed, mm. as we should have. We never leave them alone, but we did not give them the attention that they deserved. We did not understand how difficult it was for LGBTQI people to join our struggle and never to hear their cause or their cries for justice mentioned, never. We were in the struggle and we were all about a non-sexist South Africa, but we were very, very lucky to understand the question of gender justice in the movement and what some people were doing to women in the movement. So I will never make that mistake again. Inclusivity means all of those human justice issues that we cannot miss. If we don't do that, we miss something of our own humanity. Our freedom will always be an incomplete freedom if this is not right. So we need to understand that. And we cannot allow a new generation to build a movement, to build a struggle, to build a revolution and leave it incomplete in the ways that we have done. Otherwise, we're not learning anything. As far as white people are concerned, we were very, very clear. This is going to be a non-racial movement, but we said to white people, what do you need to do? And I remember using the words at the funeral of the Cradle Four when I spoke there. I said to white people, don't, don't, please don't tell me your heart is in the struggle. We don't want your heart. We want your body in the struggle. So if you can't stand there with us, march with us, go to jail with us, smell the tear gas with us, get bitten by the dogs like us, then we don't really need you. That's number one. You need to understand that. Number two, we spoke in the Black Consciousness Movement, but well, I said the conclusion that I came to because that was a fundamental tenet, that, that there is such a thing as the condition of Blackness. So we said to white people, in order to join the struggle and to be truly seen as an ally, you have to take upon yourself the condition of blackness. Now, how do you do that? Because you can't be poor like me. You can't be spat upon because of my color of my skin like me. But you have to make a choice against your own self-interest. Your own self-interest is white supremacy. Your own self-interest is white privilege. Your own self-interest is your white rich capital, your generational wealth that you build up on our backs. That's, that's your self-interest. To protect that is your life. Can you step away from that, make a choice against that, and, and take the abuse that your people will have to give you, your parents may step away from you, your family. Can you do that? If you can do that, you have taken upon yourself the condition of blackness. That's how you build a non-racial. And so for me, it was never a philosophical discussion. I looked at people who went with me. I have a friend who's dying of cancer at the moment. But when I was taken to prison, I called for the march. Um, you remember, Mandy, uh, 
the Mandela Freedom March in July, 1985. And they, they, they arrested me under section, whatever section, they had millions of sections, and took me to Pretoria Central Prussian to keep there. They thought that if they did that, the march would fall apart. But there were people here, amongst others, my young white colleague, who said, no, this march is going on. He marched in the front with the nuns, and the nuns were always in the first row, right? Oh, man. The difference between the Catholic priest and the Catholic lungs was like day and night. So the nuns were always in the front row and he marched with his name, listen to this name, his name is Jan Hoffman de Villiers de Val. He is as Afrikaner as you can get with that name. He marched and when the police came and they came with the shambox, they hit the nurse, uh, sorry, the, the nuns. He sprang ahead of the nuns. He sheltered her with his body. The whip found him here across his face. He almost lost his eye. To this day, he has a problem with that eye. That's non-racialist. You are willing to lose the sight of your eye. And that solidarity is embodied so that it's not a word. It's not a philosophical concept. It's not something nice that you preach about. It's something you can only show with your body. And that is what we are looking at. That's what the Palestinians are showing us today. I mean, we have a Palestinian, I didn't even know you were going to be here. Tariq, thank you for coming. Um, but and I, get, I get so angry. I had a huge fight with a German colleague of mine the other day. He's a bishop in the German church. He says, in this webinar that we have. I go uh, to Palestine and I talk to my Palestinian brothers and sisters and my heart breaks. And then I go to my Jewish brothers and sisters and I think my heart breaks, why? Because I'm German and what we did to them. So my response to him was, what in the world makes you think that your guilty conscience of what you did as Germans and as Nazis to the Jews must be swaged and must be salved and must be rescued and must be redeemed by what you are allowing the Israelis to do to the Palestinians. You are washing your hands in the blood of Palestinian children and you think your hands are clean. Now, of course, that's not the kind of thing you should say in a church conference. <laughs> and it caused a whole thing, but I'm glad I said it because that's exactly how I feel. Mm. Now, now you cannot miss, and I did that because way back before most of you were born in 1970 something, I was in Geneva and I was at the time where I thought black people in South Africa like me, that is the worst problem in the world. Nobody suffers more than we do. And at that conference, I met a young man from Vietnam and I sat with him and he told me what they were going through. Two million people obliterated with American bombs. And I think, sure, that has not happened to us yet. Your problem, Alan Bussoff, is not the only problem in the world. Mm. Open your eyes. Mm. That's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. Open your eyes. I say again when I said in the beginning, the empire is everywhere. The empire is unbroken. The empire is very clear on their agenda. We have to be as clear as that. And I'm finished now with this one thing. I think this is a wonderful opportunity 
there are other movements. Your job is to, first of all, go back to your organization, share with what you see, see what organize around local issues, make sure that those local issues connect with the greater and the wider issues, but organize. Take the people in your community so seriously that they guide you in what you are doing. Um, there was a thing, I mean, we had organizations in the UDF for lots of reasons, but for one reason only, that means every single organization in every town must elect their own leadership. We didn't have centralized leadership in the UDF. We invested all of our trust in the leaders that the people chose for themselves in their own little community. That's how you build leadership. That's how you build trust. That's how you build capacity. And that's how you learn from others. And that's how you learn to take those people that never get you a newspaper, never on television, but you take because of your network, because of your organization, you take their needs seriously. And more than that, it's not about in this whole thing about what our people need. It's about what our people deserve. Not that they need just a little bit of this and a little bit of that, that the rich billionaires who become our presidents and our leaders and continue to corrupt the country from top to bottom. It's not what they decide the needs of our people are, it's what our people deserve. And they deserve it because of the sacrifices that they made in the struggle, but they deserve it because they are human beings. And that's what we need to keep in mind. And so you are on a good wicket here. You have done a great thing bringing us together. I have been privileged to listen to you today. Don't let the things that are superficial, this thing that we look at a person's skin, that's not us. That is a thing that has been forced upon us by the imperialists who came here. We have no reason to think that that is valid. We have no reason to follow that bad example. We have no reason to think we ought to continue that in any way, shape or form. We can do better. And you have shown us today that you can do better. So I pray God's blessings upon you and your work and your everything that you have to do. Um, and I hope that we can come together in another way and you guys um, can show us this is the way that we need to go following you and the generation that leads. Uh, okay, uh, so we're like an hour and 15 minutes over, um, so I will not speak down, but I just want to say thank you uh, to the panelists, thank you to everyone who came out. Um, we've definitely learned a lot, and um, I really liked your, um, your comment, Barry, about our second convening. Maybe we have a discussion beforehand on social media on what the format of that structure will be. Uh, we decide on the issues and the topics we'd like to speak about beforehand. Um, but at the same time, I think um, this is maybe a representation of the current landscape of youth activism in Cape Town or in the Western Cape. And so we must also grapple with our reality. And I think that is maybe what has happened today. 
So moving forward in terms of um, next year, we would like to convene this type of discussion again, um, and we will communicate that through um, uh, movement for kids, social media pages, as well as if surplus will have us again, um, their social media pages. But again, also talking about the fact that we need to move these type of discussions um, across the city as well. So that is also something that we are working towards. Um, and so we would like to see all, all of you guys um, at the next meeting. Um, and I just very briefly want to hand over to Surplus um, to also say thank you and for them to do their thanks. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think we'd like to do all of that. Um, so yeah, thank you for all of you. Yeah. Um, and also I want to give a shout out to the city participants who were following us really closely on, on Zoom. Mm. And I think they came second in, in, you know, in, the, in the conversation about the things people want to say. So we are really pleased. Um, at the risk of starting to get your schools, man, we started from the brands. I'm Bruce from the Instagram for alternatives. Andre Silvers, this lady belongs to Shaq Collins International. Um, there's also a partner called the Project. So at the risk of pushing brands, just to say, and I think we'll be sharing this, that is the common ground that we see. You know, that we make this initiative come together. Um, and then acknowledging the, the, the speakers on, um, or the commentary in the chat room, many of them were allowed to support solidarity, great approval for what's going on here, for the conversation and the initiative. Um, uh, 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 so the way forward, I think we will discuss the um, to the way forward. Uh, there was a comment, uh, I'll, I'll just give you a response to that I'll put up there from this small Jacinta Cole. It said that perhaps going forward, we, there is a need to be in a visionary conversation about what we want rather than what we are against.